Hey guys, just wanted to give you a heads up. The end of this episode, the last couple parts, have some technical difficulties. The editing, for some reason, didn't work quite the way it's supposed to. Uh, Not sure why, but it will be something I'm looking into fixing in the future. But I hope you guys enjoy the episode. This is A Better Utopia, an audiobook podcast written and produced by Counterculture Rebellion, read by the author. Story edited by Feffy's Cottage Formatting and Design. Dedication. Chapter 13 is dedicated to the bishop, Joseph Zhang, who is detained in Communist China on May 21st, 2021. I applaud your bravery and courage for the fact that you refused to waver upon your beliefs or teach an untrue doctrine, that you stood up for your faith in the face of persecution. I pray for your safety and that God puts his hand upon you and strengthens you for whatever you are facing. At this time, Bishop Joseph Zeng is detained, but his whereabouts are unknown. Last time on A Better Utopia. As the group lays in wait for the rain to clear up and what kind of news comes out of Charlottesville, Uliam tells his reoccurring dream to Lilith. Uliam and Rebecca share a romantic moment that is interrupted by the returning scout party led by Lincoln and Preston. The news out of Charlottesville is grim, but there's a plan. They'll rescue the surgeon and pull him out and meet in Rutgersville. The pungent scent of the sewer isn't something I could easily ignore. The fact that we were obligated to go back in there nearly made my stomach churn, but I forced myself to focus on the mission. Inside the tunnels, we went through the slick wall, stinking tunnels, hunched over, trying not to think about the squelching beneath our feet as we moved. I wormed my way out of the manhole and onto the cobblestone street where we had planned to exit. Preston is already disappearing into an alley to the left where we emerged from the underwater tunnels. I push myself up to my feet and quickly follow him, doing my best to keep my sodden boots from slapping loudly on the stone below my feet. If anybody is looking for it, they would have noticed the trail of muddy, sopping boot prints on the cobblestone. I grip my teeth and quietly hope no one will, and I count on the night to hide our movements. Rodriguez, Finnegan, and Lincoln's head pop out of the manhole after I leave it. They each scramble into the dark alleyway. Breathing heavily, we gather for a bit and take stock, each man wearing a face wrinkled in disgust from the experience they had just endured. And I thought my clothes smelled bad before, Rodriguez whispered, laughing quietly through his nose. We all agreed in nods and grunts, relieved by the fresh air around us. I rest my hands on my knees and hunch over and take a minute to regain my breath. Okay, Preston, what's next? I asked, taking a deep, satisfying gulp of clean air. The house is down the street and around the corner. We need to keep a low profile, keep to the shadows. With any luck, we'll slip into the house, meet up with Douglas and Lucas, rescue the family, and be day drinking in a pub in Rutgersville in no time. Who's Lucas? 
Rodriguez asked, annoying. Preston's eyes flashed at Rodriguez in confusion. This should be common knowledge. Lucas Finn, the other scout? Oh, yeah, well, I'm used to using last names. Rodriguez snaps. Well, you guys know him as Finn, and I'm trying to avoid any confusion with your Finn. Preston shoots back, his irritation playing on his face, even in the dark, as he waves his hand at Finnegan. Guys, can we stick to the mission? I don't hide my annoyance by the whole discourse when I interrupt their nonsense. The lack of sleep and the time in the sewer, well, it's clearly eating at my nerves. Anyway, Preston rolls his eyes, not missing a beat. We meet up with him. Once we do, Lucas and I will scout ahead of the group to make sure the route of the sewers is clear. You guys should follow in, I don't know, five minutes or so. Unless you hear gunfire or any kind of nonsense noise that indicates we've been detected. Preston then peers around the corner of the alley, quickly scans the streets for any sign of life, then waves us on as he steps out. The city starts out mostly quiet at this late hour. Windows in homes and apartments are as black as volcanic glass. A few weary, frazzled street cats are flushed out of the shadows as we briskly but gingerly make our way along the edge of the street. We try to keep our footfalls as silent as theirs as we watch the felines flint away and melt into the darkness. Their eyes sometimes catching the reflecting mirror light at us and follow our stealthy progress along the streets. As we approach the corner of the street we are heading for, we are slowed by the sound of shouting people. Our noses pick up the scent of burning pitch as our noses have gotten used to the reek of sewer that has still shrouded us like a cloud. There is thick smoke in the air and it creates a corona of haze around the moon. Preston presses himself against the edge of the building wall. There a painted sign hangs overhead that reads, Henderson and Sons, Baked Goods. The pale paint and the gilding almost makes it look like the words are floating in the darkness. Preston leans over ever so slightly to peer around the corner with just one eye. He quickly snaps his head back. Shit! Finnegan, who is wedged up against the wall next to him, whispers, Well, what is it? Preston's eyes flash as he hisses out. There's about 30 or so of them in front of the surgeon's house with torches, bat, and hell knows what of the weapons they got. Lincoln's eyes shine widely in the moonlight. Any firearms? Not that I can see, but that doesn't mean they don't have any. I only got a glimpse. Preston's voice is edged in. I pull out my revolver. I give the spindle a quick look and then ask, Are they utopians? Preston twists, peeks again, and then leans back into his spot. Looks like it. He concludes with a gravelly tone. Um, any other way in? Finnegan does his best to mimic me. He extracts his gun from his clothes. He doesn't seem as familiar with the revolver. His actions look contrived and clumsy. Not practiced like mine, but they're definitely getting there. Rodriguez must be drilling him in their spare time. We could try the back alley, Preston suggests. In a silent consensus, he slips from the corner of the building and swiftly fleets across the street with barely a flutter of clothes. We follow, one by one. One crosses and the other stay vigilant and prepare to act as cover if the herd of zealots happens to spot one of us. I fight to not hold my breath as I cross. Taking the back alleys adds extra time we really can't afford to an already risky plan. The sky above is growing paler, and the birds are stirring from their slumber. My brain's buzzing with alarm that our small time window is closing quickly. All I can do is shove these thoughts down into the back of my mind and forge on. The alley is a little more than a path. Auburn-colored brick walls flank us. A simple wrought iron gate that separates each garden area from the next in these dense, packed residences. Trash bins and scattered debris litter the ground. We send through these with particular care, making sure not to make any unnecessary noise by tripping over something. 
It would have been easy to pass the gate we are looking for if it hadn't been for the hooded men loitering in the shadows by the entrance of the destination. Preston freezes when we near them. He meets the gaze of the tallest one of the three figures, whose face is mostly obscured by the shadow of his hood. His eyes are just glassy glints in the mere light. Rodriguez elbows his way past Preston and blurts out, Hey! Hey! Are you three the ones that we are sent back here to meet? Both Preston and the tall Utopians seem confused. Who sent you back here? All the protesters should be in front where you should be. The tallest guy stiffens up like a rooster about to crow. Listen, pal. Rodriguez gets a little aggressive when he addresses him. I don't know his name, but he wore the same stupid getup as you guys and told me and my friends to hurry back here. Said something about how they're going to burn the building on fire or something that you three idiots would need help in the case they came out the back. The second figure, who is marketably shorter and wider than the other ones, then prostrates. Maybe Prometheus is going through with the plan then. His voice comes out crackling and high-pitched. The tall man shrugs. I don't know, maybe, but he wouldn't send nobodies to help us. He gestures towards us as he says this. I swallow the ball of nerves in my throat, hoping that Rodriguez's game has not been made. He seemed pretty pissed with your last screw-up. Maybe he's trying to insult you by sending them. Probably lost confidence in your so-called leadership, the pudgy man says with no shortage of sarcasm in his voice. He laughs through his nose much like a pig would if it could laugh. Shut up, Theodore, the taller figure snaps, whips around to glare at each other. The third figure just looms there, just listening to these two idiots for now. The pudgy man's snicker abruptly ceases and he snarls. Did you just call me by my old name, Richard? The two figures, now nose to nose, well, closer to nose to chest, look as if they're about to throw fists. The air around Theodore cracks with angry energy. Rodriguez uses this distraction to close the gap between him and them, and as he does, he scoops up a loose brick from the ground with a smooth, liquid movement. I know Rodriguez well enough to know what's next, and I then, too, close the distance myself. I dig my hand into my pocket and pull out my flip knife. I hide the movement the best I can and let my body conceal any reflection of the blade that might catch the eye of the figures at the gate. To my surprise, Finnegan is already there, too. Close at my heels, with his fists balled up, ready for whatever is about to come. The third figure almost breaks his silence as he spots our movements and tries to warn the others. He's just too slow, and his face shows the realization of being too late. Rodriguez has already let the brick fly, and it sails end over end until it abruptly halted by a conclusion with a skull. The tall figure's head snaps forward from the impact, and his body crumples to the ground in a shadowy heap. Theodore's eyes follow his comrade to the ground. His confusion delays him a second, but is followed by stupefaction as he gasps at the ground of us as we are split into action. Rodriguez's starward body collides with the pudgy figure with a sickening sound. As that happens, Finnegan and I are grappling with the hooded figure behind them, his silence now replaced with alarmed screams. Finnegan locks the man's shoulders in a grip, and with my fist holding the knife, I jab it hard in the mouth. Shut up! I growl as I strike him. I think I feel the teeth popping out as I do it a second time. Okay, okay, just please don't hurt me anymore, he begs, a tooth coming out of his mouth and clicking to the ground between us. I can hear a slight gag come from Finnegan's direction. Rodriguez withdrew from the unconscious Theodore, straightens himself, and puts his hands on his hips, breathing heavily. Preston, check that guy and see if he's got a pulse. He points to the tall man. Lincoln, help me drag this fat ass inside the gate.
Finnegan, don't let this idiot go. I'm going to check him for weapons. I pat the third coward down, and I find nothing on his thin, flimsy frame and proceed to shove him through the gate. Uh, no pulse, Preston concludes, rising to his feet again. Uh, what do you want to do with him? Rodriguez huffs from pulling the weight of Theodore's bulk. Drag him in here. That way, if anyone walks down the alley, it won't be the first thing they see. The back of the brick home was just big enough to fit a small garden, and it looked like it was recently well planted. There was also a small wooden shed and a small red-stained wooden deck. There's a strip of manicured lawn. If it would not have been for the dead guy we just unceremoniously threw onto it, everything would have been perfectly in its place. It's hard to avoid smirking about it. The ball-shaped Theodore was rolled into the garden, too. Finnegan took up the rear end, shoving the last guy through the gate. His revolver is drawn and pressed painfully into the back of the only conscious dark monk. The man is fighting tears in his fear, but they are weaning. His cheekbones shine with the moisture. I point my knife at the sniveling man, my knuckles still slick with his blood. Take your rope off. What? He stammers. The terror is evident in his voice. I said take your robe off. I growled at him. He slowly pulls the robe over his head to reveal a press shirt and a silk tie with a university emblem on it. The dark slacks on his leg also pressed to perfection, and a fine leather shoes that were probably perfect until he scuffed one of them in the altercation. His young face and head full of thick, dusty blonde curls looks at me in sheer terror. My insides go floop when the thought rattles in my brain that he looks like he's just barely old enough to leave home. You're just college kids, Lincoln exclaims with surprise. He's still winded from lugging the large utopian into the garden and leans his body against the shed. The gate closes behind us and Preston then stands, crossing his arms, locking on. Maybe he's trying to ignore Lincoln's statement. Rodriguez is busying himself struggling to strip the robe off of Theodore's round body. No, he was just a college kid. He blurts out in a low voice, never looking up from his test. Then he chose to put on that robe. He chose to go out and riot. He chose to be in that alleyway, waiting for whoever was going to come out of this house so he could do what we did to him. Now, he's experiencing the consequences of his choices. So don't pity him. He then spits on the ground, rips up the robes into long strips of cloth, and ties up Theodore's hands behind him. Lincoln, can you tie up his feet? He tosses some of the strips over to Lincoln. Lincoln emits a sigh. I think seeing the baby-faced guy fighting back tears, sniveling and gaping at us with huge eyes has unnerved him. Maybe the innocent look on the blonde kid's face appears to his sense of compassion. I don't know. I watch him tear up the strip of cloth from the hem of the robe and bind Theodore's feet. He looks like a porker ready for the split. Finnegan, get this kid's hands tied behind his back. I tear a few more strips of cloth from the ones on the robes, and I throw it at Finnegan. Now listen. I glare into the eyes of the fearful utopian boy. I'm going to gag you so you don't decide to do something stupid and start yelling or something. Now open your mouth. The child-faced man complies and opens his trembling jaw. I wedge dry, rough fabric between his teeth and pull it tight, tugging it taut and securing the knot behind his head. He makes a muffled whimpered as I do. I point at the vacant spot in front of the shed on the edge of the lawn. Go sit by your friend and place your feet out in front of you. Lincoln, you mind getting his legs too? Lincoln looks up and nods. I can tell this whole ordeal bothers him. He had fought in the First Great War, and I'm sure he knows what we're doing is right. Yet, something about this baby-faced kid is unsettling him. Well, it's also unsettling me. I can't blame him. Before I have time to contemplate more on this, my musing is interrupted by a deep, familiar voice.
And now, a word from our sponsors. I could no longer deny it. It was time. Yet my stomach lurched and I had a cold sweat form upon my brow. I had to face that dreaded thing that resided in my bathroom. I trudged into the bathroom and flicked on the light. I knew what was coming next and it made my heart race. My eyes welded up in tears for the sheer horror that was about to take place in this very bathroom. It was unfair. Why? Why did it have to be this way? I turned on the shower, lifted a trembling hand to the old, rusty, cheap, store-bought razor. My mind flashed to the last time, to the time of painful razor burn, and even worse, how I had nicked myself. Oh, what a bloodbath. I lifted the razor and knew, knew my time had come. My heart pounded in my chest, and it was time to do the unthinkable. I was about to start the bloodbath when a knock came from the door. A sweet, angelic voice said, Hey babe, I got you that Manscaped stuff you wanted. It's in the drawer under the sink. I went to the drawer and pulled it open. There, there it was, a beautiful black leather bag, and in it, my salvation. Guys, grooming yourself doesn't have to be a horror story. Ditch the razor or the lackluster trimmers that pull hair and upgrade to Manscaped. It's been a game changer for me. I'm not having to deal with hair being pulled by the trimmer or wielding a blade around spots that, well, make me nervous. The Lawnmower 4.0 works like a charm. It comes with this amazing light who, and whoever designed that is a freaking genius. And well, basically it's pretty smooth. And really everything that came in the kit it was amazing. It left me feeling pretty fresh and comfortable. I mean, I work a pretty hard job and uh, let's just say the products really helped me stay comfortable down there. By far my favorite part, the boxers. Probably the best pair of boxers I've ever worn. So go help yourself and help the show. Use the promo code UTOPIA and you get 20% off plus free shipping. That's promo code, all caps, U-T-O-P-I-A for 20% off your purchase plus free shipping. I looked at the small wooden deck in the doorway that led into the house, and I saw a giant of a man occupied in the doorframe, his huge hand gripping a revolver, dwarfing the firearm with the scale of his digits. The doors open behind him, shredding weak light into the scene. He's taking it in with a lazy weep of the eye. Lincoln straightens himself up over the trembling body of the sniveling utopian. Douglas, why the hell are they here in the first place? I only know that the crowd out there has been shouting a lot of things. Something about him needing to come with them or else they'll kill him and his family too. Tried asking the sergeant, but he's too busy trying to gather his things to tell me much. Douglas exhales heavy and shifts his weight on his feet nervously. What things? He was only supposed to bring the medical supplies he needed. That's it. That's our agreement. Lincoln's face is turning a weird shade of red. Put an eye patch on him and he'd almost pass for Leslie. I know that. They aren't listening to me or Lucas. Douglas boomed back. Rodriguez looks up. He just finished inspecting all the knots, hogtying the unconscious pig of a utopian. Tell them we gotta go. We don't got time. 
The daylight is coming, and who knows how long until... The sound of yelling and shattering glass cuts Rodriguez off. Three people shove their way into the small space with us, colliding with the tall man and almost knocking Douglas over. Douglas, confused, regains his footing. He is in the middle of asking the newly arrived group, a pale-faced man, woman, and child, something, when the sound of a gunshot resonates and interrupts him again. Another weary body enters our circle from the back door. His eyes looked horrified as he gazes at the group. It's actually hard for me to recognize that this is Lucas, who is normally a quiet, shy man. We have to go now. They're breaking in, and they just set the second story on fire. Lucas bellows. The veins in his neck are bulging. I look over the frightened family of three. The man, who I presume is the surgeon we've come for, and his wife, Pieretos in fear. The woman is consoling the terrified boy whose head is buried against his mother's shoulder, sobbing. He is still in his nightclothes, clutching a small, brown, plush bear. I snap my fingers and bring the surgeon back to my attention. Hey! Hey! Do you have everything you need to perform the surgery? He looks up. Terror is plastered all over his face, and his soft blue eyes shine with, with a wash of tears. My heart breaks for the man, and I can only pause to imagine how hard this will be if my loved ones were in the middle of the chaos. Not to mention he's probably losing everything he worked for, all because his house was here in the city. I speak again, trying to come off less of a jerk, but enough firmness and urgent in my voice to demand some answers. Do you have everything you need? I accumulate with as much calm as I can muster given the situation. Uh, there's, there's one bag in there I need. Everything else should be in the clinic in Ruckersville, he says, voice barely loud enough to hear. How badly do you need that bag to be able to operate? My eyes lock onto his, trying my best to stay focused and not lose it on him. If he had not been trying to gather other things, maybe he would have grabbed it. Yet, how could I really know? Losing my temper now would only create more of an opportunity for this mission to fail. Lucas jumps into the middle of the conversation with an alarmed look in his eyes. We've got to go. They're already in the house. Did I mention it's on fire? He points his finger to the roof where the flames now have burned through to the rafters and are engulfing them. Tongues of fire lick out of the bottom of the roof and curling up against the shingles, all glowing in a luminous golden orange light. The reality hits me as the power of the heat radiates on my face. He's right. We need to stop having a conference and we gotta get moving. The surgeon peers around us at his home with a resignation. The bag, the bag has everything in it that I need to sedate him. Without it, he could go into shock and die. I drew out my revolver. Where is it then? It's in the hall between the kitchen and the living area. It's a black leather bag with silver handles. The rest of you go. I'll catch up. The resolve in my voice doesn't convince everyone to do as I say, and I know we don't have time for this crap. Rev, it's suicide. We'll think of something else. Rodriguez places his hand on my shoulder and squeezes tightly as if to stop me. I'm going in there. Deal with it. I shrug his hand away and continue towards the back door. My frustration with the situation might be clouding my judgment. Rob Grises then grabs a fistful of my shirt. We will think of something else. He's speaking forcefully. Rebecca wants you alive too. He adds in a gentler tone. Let go of me. I pull away, uselessly swat at his hand. His grip on me doesn't waver. His glare is almost menacing. Being stubborn was a mistake you made in Volgrad, remember? He spews at me furiously. 
The weight of those words shoots ice through my stomach and fire through my veins, and I feel my heart froze the moment his words hit home. I turn and look at him, my teeth bared like a rabid dog. What did you say? I hiss. The urgency of the situation is now forgotten, and I'm so tied up in my anger. But Rodriguez isn't glaring at me anymore. His hard eyes are now on something else behind me. His hold on me is released, and his hand rises again, gripping his revolver. I can finally see through the red enough to follow his gaze, and what I see is five men dressed in either black robes or torn, dirty street clothes. They have somehow poured out of the burning house and are standing on the deck, gaping at us. Some are holding metal pipes, some baseball bats. The man in the middle, however, is distinguished from the others by his red robe of shiny silk that picks up the light of the fire and makes him look like he's aflame. He lifts his hands, palms up, in a pacifying gesture. Those of us who aren't brandishing our weapons suddenly are, and the sounds of hammers being cocked blend in with the snaps and crackles of the raging fire. I'm not here to fight. I just want what is mine, he says, his hands still up. He reaches to his sides of his head and throws back his red hood. He is in his mid-thirties by the look of his face, and his smooth complexion is one of a man that has enjoyed an easy life with a lot of money. And that is... Douglas bellows over the din of destruction. His red robe and the documents he stole. The red-clad figure points at the surgeon. Lincoln's gaze moves from the stranger to the surgeon, and his face is awash with disgust. You're a utopian? I was, but I'm not anymore. The surgeon's soft blue eyes shift down at the ground in shame. Kendall, the red-robed man, murmurs through the sneer that is forming on his flawless face. A utopian is a utopian till death. What you people are doing is unethical and disgusting. Sergeant Kendall's hate-filled eyes pivot onto the cleric. I will expose it all. The cleric laughs, ruefully, and then mockingly. To who? No. This is a fool's errand. Nobody will listen to you. He pauses, but his face still looks amused. I'll tell you what. If you give me the documents and the robe... I will generously allow you to safely leave the city. Neither police or the Utopians will impede you. The barrel of Rodriguez's revolver trains onto the cleric. And in true Rodriguez fashion, he says, I have a better idea. How about I paint your brains all over your friends and we leave anyway? You can't, Kendall exhales freshly and digs into his leather satchel he wore across his body. He's the chief of police and besides... Red robes of his level always come connected. We would all be wanted men wherever we go. From the satchel, he pulls out a brown leather document folder. The pleasantly plump woman beside him places her hand on his shoulder. You can't, Kenny. You have sacrificed everything. We have sacrificed everything to get those documents. Kendall takes in his wife's worried expression. I can see tears welling up in his eyes as he peers over at her. They seem to share a thousand words in this brief look. Not everything, he says to her gently. The compassion on his face turns to rage and disgust when he peers back up at the red cleric. If I give you this, how do I know you'll follow through and you'll let us leave? I will personally escort you and your group out of this city. And then you can hand it over and leave. He punctuates his promise by placing a hand on his heart, all while wearing a cat-like smirk. You have my word. Your word means shit to us, Rodriguez exclaims. The red robe feigns a look of shock. 
then I guess we can all simply kill one another. You gun us down, and the gunshots will draw the utopian horde back here, and they'll tear you apart. They're probably about to break through here as we speak. Can't you hear them, how close they are? You can't shoot them all. Fine, I grunt through my gritted teeth. But two conditions. One, you grab the black bag with silver handles in the house before it's too late, and give it to us now. No questions asked. And two, we choose our exit point. The cleric doesn't bother to hide his annoyance, either from taking orders from the likes of us, or he isn't particularly keen on our conditions. Either way, I don't give a shit. His mouth twists as he seems to be ruminating on the situation. What's in the bag? He detects the question to Kendall, the surgeon. I said no questions. Listen here, peasant. He snarls at me. You don't have much leverage, and at the end of the day, if I die, my mission is accomplished. Some other utopian will grab what you have after they catch you and rip you apart like hyenas. Then they'll just return what's ours. The only reason I'm even entertaining this discussion is I like being alive. Now, what's in the bag, Kendall? Just some medical supplies, Kendall replies. The cleric snaps his finger at one of his men in the group. Go grab the bag. The journey back to the sewers is long, even though it is merely a few blocks away. The unease of the situation seems to make everything slow down. It isn't any better that as we make our way towards the exit point, more and more people are joining the procession as we are escorted out of the city. The utopian archelites in their hoods and inky robes are gripping makeshift weapons in their pale hands. The lay people mix in amongst them, carrying torches and hammers. As we walk, a few police officers merge into the procession. For a few seconds, I feel a strange relief when I see them. But then I remember that they're a threat too, infiltrated by the utopians and their poison. The law enforcers move purposely between us and the cleric and his four men and the growing horde. Finally, there it is, the alley where the manhole is. I never thought I would be so happy to go back into the sewers, I snicker to myself. Of course, this is all contingent on whether the cleric will follow through with the agreement. I know things are about to get difficult, and I also know that if we didn't play this right, we all might just end up dead. I stopped and turned around about a hundred feet before turning into the alley. I can't let them see how we got into the city, or we risk them chasing us down there too. I visualize utopians spilling into the manholes in the city and hunting us down. All right. This is the end point, where we part ways. It is so odd seeing the crown behind the police halt at the sound of my voice. There are too many to count by now. The procession has grown to about a couple hundred by my guess. This makes my blood run cold. The looming feeling of dread is now one more enemy I have to fight. I have to push down the thoughts that told me that this was not going to work, and we were about to die where we stand. The red-robed cleric smiles and raises an eyebrow. Here? You want to stop here? We're not even out of the city yet. In fact, we've barely moved. I can still feel the sweaty handle of my revolver in my hand. I try as hard as I can to keep my hand from striking and resting my thumb upon the hammer. Yes, here. You give us the medical bag. We'll give you your papers and the robe. This is how it's going to play out. I will send most of my people down the road, and after they get a good head start, I will get a little distance too. I'll set your documents on that doorstep there. I pointed at a patio up a ways the street with a distinct red door. Once I'm around the corner, you are free to take them. If I hear anything that might sound like a chase, I will not hesitate to turn back and start shooting. I might not have enough bullets for everyone, 
but my aim's pretty good, and I will take down the ones that matter before anyone gets to me. His mouth parts and he bursts into a mocking laugh. <laughs> you think you can bargain? This isn't bargaining, I reply leveling. This is how it's going to work. Look, how many of us are here? by my good graces, that I have not sent the crowd to overtake you. Now, just give me what I want, and maybe I'll let you live. I raise my revolver and point it at his head. In response, the police officers do the same. Guns cocking can be heard, but this time the crowd is eerily still and silent, watching on, waiting for something. You would rather live, right? Isn't that what you said? You like living, right? I say with as much lightness and indifference in my voice. Then I darken my growler at him and say in a gravelly tone, We do this my way, or you're the first one I kill. His smile scrunches into a frown and he eyes me, assessing me. Have you ever killed before? Now it's my turn to laugh heartily. <laughs> I just got back from a war. What do you think? Oh, you so you served. I should have guessed by the way you carry yourself. He tips his head and mocks a salute. Well... Thank you for your service. Yeah, sure, I reply dryly. Well, seeing as I don't want to die today, we'll do it your way. He signs out dramatically, pouting almost like a child. He flips his rackish hair from his forehead and cracks a white smile. Give me the robe. And you know what? I want his amulet, too. He pointed a long finger at the surgeon. The amulet wasn't part of the deal, I scowled at him. I ponder for a second and then bark out, Give us a Mobok cocktail for it. Why, he spits. Why do you need the amulet? I return, growling the words. The cleric lifts his pasty hand and snaps his fingers. A policeman quickly strips one of the rioters of a bottle with a dirty rag in his neck and passes it to the chief in red robes. The cleric, clutching the bottle, gives me a baleful glare and murmurs, Now, can we do this or not? I have other police business to attend to. As you can see, my city is in the middle of a riot. Surgeon, the robes, paper, and amulet. I reach my free hand back blindly. Eyes in the muzzle of my gun locked on the cleric's forehead. I feel the cool, soft silk of the robe, a small, hard metal object pressed into my grip. I will set the locket there, I indicate with my full hand, and you will set the cocktail there. I, I point the robe three feet to the left. Very well, the cleric agrees. The switch goes smoothly. I feel a sudden surge of hope that maybe this just might work. Now, instead of a robe, my hand is gripping the sweaty glass of a bottle. The scent of cheap vodka wicked through the rag wrinkles my nose. This is an insurance policy for my incomplete plan that's unfolding in my head every step of the way. Stay here with me, brother. Everybody else, leave. All of you. My voice cuts to the awkward silence. As we, as we hang into some weird limbo. Waiting for the rest of the things to unfold, I can hear them move, only silently. Le Rodriguez, take this bottle. I handed the bottle over to him and grabbed the folder. I hope to never see you again. Give me five minutes after I set that folder at the doorstep, as agreed. After every shred of confidence I can and direct into my voice. Well, get going then. The red robe waves me off like one would a bug buzzing around. My heart thumps with each set. I pace gingerly backwards, gun still trained on the cleric, who is growing smaller and less threatening with each set, yet much harder to hit with a bullet. I can hear Rodriguez a few feet ahead of me, leading me along. 
a deep, hopeful breath and hoping beyond hope that this will work. But Rodriguez beats me to it, vocalizing what I'm about to tell myself. They are going to chase us as soon as we get around that corner. Although what he is saying is alarming and true, there's something in it that breaks the tension, and I'm just relieved to hear him. That's why when we round that corner, you're going to throw that bottle. You still have matches on you? Ways. All right. Let's do this. I reach down and place the folder on the doorstep, and my eyes take in something unexpected. As I place the folder on the stone step, one of the pages slips out, and at the top, there is a title that reads, The Volgard Research Project. How? How can this be? I can barely feel my hands trembling all of a sudden. What is it? Rev, we've got to go. About Volgard, I say terrorously. Rev, about a... Uh, I was just trying to get you to... No, no, not that. The document says, Volgard Research Project. I don't look up at him, but I can hear him hold his breath. I straighten. We can't leave this here. Down, he snaps. They are watching us. We have to leave it here, or else they're going to really hunt us down. We will get our answers from the surgeon. Now on three. One, two, three. Bolt around the corner, and Rodriguez, with some Rodriguez magic, manages to light the vodka-soaked rag and fling the incendiary into a long arc behind us, where, where it falls with a delightful explosion crash that skids along the ground and splatters the walls of the building. Flames, beautiful blue flames crawl up, crawled up along the mortar and on the street and turned hot orange as they grew. We are running with everything we've got. At first, there's no sound of pursuit. I expect immediately stampeding of feet and the shouts of the horde. I let myself think for a brief moment as we used the fire block to make our escape that maybe the red rope cleric decided to keep his word. But it only takes as long as that thought to go through my mind to finally hear them coming. Quick, down the hole! Rodriguez is hissing in a panicked whisper. He points the way as he laces his fingers through the holes of the metal plate. They are so heavy, but he slides it in the place behind us as we scurry down the ladder into the darkness. He does this with minimal noise in spite of the weight of the iron disc. We forge forward into the dark sewers, clinging on to hope that we would have enough time to get some distance between us and the utopian horde, and that it would take a bit for them to realize we went down instead of forward. Try to push back the worry that we'll lose our way in this blind, reeking labyrinth. This has been A Better Utopia, Chapter 13, The Utopian, written and produced by Counterculture Rebellion, read by the author, story edited by Fifi's Cottage, Formatting and Design. Tune in October 10th to find out what happens next. Like the show? Please share it on Facebook or any other social media and leave us a five-star review. Want more news? Check out the Better Utopia Facebook page, 